So let me do that real fast. Okay. Um, So this sermon is the second part of last week in which I read almost two full chapters of Scripture, and I'm going to read those passages that I need for this one when we get there. Um, If you want to have a Bible open to be ready, it's on page 137 in your pew Bible. And one of the things that's true about this series where we're doing gospel through the Bible is that the sermons tend to be on fairly larger pieces of Scripture. So three chapters today. Um, Next week, it's going to be 1 Samuel chapters 1 to 7. So what I would recommend is during the week, take some time to read through that part of the Bible yourself so that when you come on Sunday morning, you'll get the maximum amount out of it. Does that make sense? It's like four pages, okay? Um, one, of the, one of the things that tends to be true about people is many of them imagine themselves hopefully either one day or are in a romantic relationship. And when you first start thinking about this, you start—you you imagine it being this like wonderful interaction with someone else where they love you and you love them, and you share your heart, and they really hear it, your heart, and then they share their heart, and you really hear it, and it's this wonderful thing where you just—and and then, and then you actually get in a relationship, and you realize that a lot of it is a little more like, you know, not that way. And you end up sort of—you can end up at an impasse with each other where you're just kind of like, what am I going to do with this, right? And, and essentially you keep pushing and you keep pushing and you keep pushing, and eventually just you get stuck. I mean, is what happens. And it's, it's not easy. And sometimes it's, it's, you get stuck in very unhelpful ways. And, um, and sometimes—and and this is not quite as funny, but you get, you get stuck in ways that do damage, and you really need help getting out of that, Right? That's sad, isn't it? Um, It's a puppy who spent some time with a porcupine. Um, When uh, my first—I was talking to my first pastor, who is not these people. Um, His name is Mark Macia. He's a pastor in North Carolina. Uh, I was a teen—I was like—I was 20, right? And I I think—no, I I was probably 21. Anyway, I was talking about getting married to this girl I'd met in college named Alexi. And so I was having like one-on-one pre-marriage counseling, so she wasn't there. And so he he told me about this concept called the stuck couple. Stuck couple. And I was like, okay, you'll have to explain. He's like, okay, here's how this works. You pick a couple as a couple— Somebody who's at least two life stages ahead of you. So, like, if you're newly married without kids, then two life stages ahead of you would be, like, they have kids and their kids are in—some of their kids are in school. Two life stages ahead of you. And you have to respect them as a couple, but mainly you have to respect the Christian life and the gender role of the opposite gender. So when Lexi and I pick a stuck couple, she has to respect the Christian life and the fatherhood and husbandry of the man— and I have to respect the woman's Christian life and wifery and motherhood, okay? And here's why. Because when you get stuck, you can appeal to the stuck couple, but you can only appeal to the member of the stuck couple that is the opposite gender as you, okay? So if you're the woman and your husband is being crazy and you just know he's crazy and you just know if you talk to a rational person who really loves Jesus, they will tell him that he's wrong, you can appeal to the stuck couple, but you have to appeal to the man in the stuck couple, and if you're a woman, or if you're the husband, you can appeal to a sane person, but you can, you can, you can only appeal to the woman in the stuck couple. And then what that means is you actually very rarely have to actually appeal to the couple because when you're in the argument and you go, I'm going to call Mike Kelly, and your husband goes, okay, yeah, he's going to tell me I'm wrong. Then you don't have to call him, <laughs> right? Or if you go, I'm going to call Mike Kelly, and your husband goes, call him. Here's my phone. Then you go, oh, maybe, maybe I'm just really pregnant. You know, I mean, who knows? <laughs> this is all hypothetical. Um, but, but here's why this is important, right? Like Lexi and I, Mike and Susie Kelly were our stuck couple when we were in Chicago. And we, we had to use them. I mean, they were, they were very—and they, were, they weren't pastors or like psychological theorists. They were just Christians who had children, and we respected them. And they were very helpful to us. And here's why. You, you're probably thinking, Nick, but Nick, you were married. You had a covenant. You had a contract with each other. And when you got up, you promised to love, honor, and cherish each other. So why would a stuck couple be necessary? How could that possibly be something that you would need? You had a covenant. Well, here's, here's what you need to understand about contracts. It, all you need is one idiot in the contract, and you need a mediator. That's all. You just got one—if you got one person that can't live up to the contract, you're going to need help. You're going to need a mediator. And that's one of the things that 
Israel ended up finding out. That's one of the things that Moses had to recognize. And this is one of the things that God is really doing in Exodus 32 to 34. Um, and one of the things that's re- it's important to recognize is that you and I, this is going to sound like a rabbit trail. I promise it's not. You and I, you should never, let's just, let's just agree on something, okay? Now you don't have to agree, but I'm proposing us agreeing on something. I propose we never say again this phrase, I'm not perfect. I'm just proposing that. And here's why I'm going to force those of you into it who don't want to accept that. Because from a Christian perspective, the statement, I'm not perfect, is an admonition of breathtaking arrogance. The idea that we're nearly perfect, but not quite perfect, which is what that phrase generally implies, is so far from true that it's hardly possible to recognize the breath of the arrogance of somebody who would say, I'm not perfect. So, I suspect, I just, and and this is one of the the problems I have with something called the Romans Road. If you've been a Christian a while and done evangelism, you know what that is. Which is basically the book of Romans in the Bible. It's a bunch of passages you go through to show people that they need God and that this is what Christ has done and this is what can—you can receive salvation. Here's my problem with it sometimes, is that there's this one verse that it uses in Romans that says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Right? Which is totally true. And in the context of Romans, it's very clear what that means. But here's what it tends to communicate when the verse is used in isolation. God has 50,000 rules. And you broke rule 34,623. The one that you're supposed to put new aglets on the end of your shoelaces whenever they fray. And because you haven't done that, you have fallen short of the glory of God because God is perfect. And now you are going to hell eternally if, and you're going to be punished and tortured and be without God forever because you fell short of the glory of God. And so you need Jesus. Now, that's a cute little math problem, right? Oh, you're not perfect. You know, you're less than 100%, even if you're 99.6. Therefore, you need the extra 0.4. Therefore, you need Jesus. But you know what I think it produces in people? A hatred of God or a hatred of Christianity. How emotionally out of balance, how nitpicky, is a God who creates a hell and actually consigns people there because he has 50,000 rules, and if you break one of them, you're going to go to eternal hell. People just get angry. They don't go, oh, you're right. I should accept Jesus. Maybe they did 50 years ago. I don't know. But it's because they were already Christ-haunted by a culture. They don't now. Now they go, you believe that? And here's why you shouldn't believe that. This passage from 2 Kings 21 that I'm sure you read this week. It's a fairly—for those of you who don't think that's funny, it's a fairly obscure passage and therefore funny. So this is what it says. He, this is King Manasseh, took and carved Asherah pole, an Asherah pole. If you don't know what that is, Asherah was a goddess of fertility that people sacrificed children they didn't want, mostly girl babies, to her in order to increase the fertility of the agricultural life of the—because if you kill the product of your own fertility to the goddess of fertility, surely— the result will be more fertility, right? So they made an Asher pole. He made it, and he put it in the temple of which the Lord had said to David and to his son Solomon, in this temple and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. I will not again make the feet of the Israelites wander from the land I, have, I gave their forefathers. If only they will be careful to do everything I commanded them, and will keep the whole law that my servant Moses gave them. But the people did not listen. Manasseh led them astray so that they did more evil than the nations the Lord had destroyed before the Israelites. Now, I want you to see the breathtaking separation here. Here's what God says. Be careful to do—what's that word? Everything I commanded them, right? And to keep the whole law. Okay. The whole—what are the first two commandments in the law? Don't make an idol, right? And don't take the Lord's name in vain because there's only one God, right? That's the first three kind of squished together. So God is God, therefore don't make an idol and be careful how you use God's name because his image is sacred and his name is sacred. You don't screw that. It's the first law. It's the the first bit. And it's what everything else flows out of. And what does he do? He makes an idol and he puts it in the place where God's name is. Oh, let's do that. Let's just take the first two commandments and break them as much as we possibly can with a child sacrifice idol where we kill our children in God's temple 
to worship the goddess of fertility in the very place God said, my name will be here. Friends, one of the things we've got to realize in the way humanity is portrayed in the Bible is this is how we are portrayed. We are not portrayed as people who have been unfortunately created by a supremely picky God who has created thousands of rules that if we break even one of them, he will damn us forever. Now, it is true that the glory of God is such that if we break one of his real, true, and good laws, he has every right to do that. But that's not the situation we're in. The situation we're in is this situation where God gives us a true moral law of beauty and we won't even start to obey the very first line. And you see, if you recognize that, that God has made this covenant, this contractual arrangement of relationship with humanity, and he is maximally morally perfect and truthful and good, and we are Manasseh-like, it might occur to you that the concept of a mediator is not dictated by the pickiness of God, but by the reality of his real desire of a relationship and the fact that we are so poor in living up to it. Not because he's put it beyond our reach, but because we won't lift a finger. Now, if you recognize that, then one of the things that we'll recognize, it just flows out of this, is that salvation is going to require mediation. Right? Neither the promise nor the law has ever worked without a mediator, and it wasn't really intended to. When God gave the law, he gave a mediator with it, with it didn't he? He gave it through a mediator, Moses. So let's just go over three things quickly related to— It's quickly. I probably shouldn't even say that, should I? Um, one is— um, Mediators intercede. So if you look at this, what happens in this passage? One of the things that happens in Exodus 32 to 34 is God makes a mediator out of Moses. Now you'd be like, well, wait a second, Nick. Moses is already a mediator. I mean, we've been, it's chapter 32. I mean, it's chapter 3. He's already a mediator. God calls him, tells him what he's going to do, gives him power, tells him to go set my people free, blah, 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 blah. He's already a mediator. He, it's, that's, that's true. But there's a fundamental shift here because this is different all the stuff that happened before this, it hadn't gone bad yet. God was—Moses was still bringing him to the wedding. So think about it this way. Imagine, imagine you're a pastor, okay? And one of the things you do as a pastor is you marry people you hardly know, right? So they, you know, they come in, the bride comes down, and they come up here. And so there's this couple that you've hardly, you'd hardly know them, and you're doing the wedding. So, would, would you like to marry him? Yes, I would. Would you like to marry her? Yes. And they get married, and you're like, oh, everybody claps. They go out, you announce them, whatever. And everybody goes, oh, pastor, that was a great— what, right? So that just happens. And you're like, oh, that's great. So did, you, did you just do a ministry of mediation? Yeah, right? You mediated a covenant. That's great. You got to be a mediator. Okay. So then you're trying to enjoy your dinner at the reception. And one of the, uh, the, the father of the groom comes over and says, listen, I don't mean to just disturb your dinner, but the, we, the bride just got caught in a closet with, with two of the groomsmen. And um, my son is very upset. Um, is, can you help? And so you— you get to be a mediator again, right? Totally different. To walk with them for the next 10 years as their pastor. It's totally different, right? That's, that's not the same thing. Yeah, you're a mediator in both situations. Not the same thing. And see, what's happening here is Moses is going from one to the other. Up until chapter 32 to 34, he's been the bringing them to the— he's, he brings them out of Egypt, power of God. They follow. Here we go. Yeah, they complain, but they don't get killed for it. You know, I, God, and so God finally brings them to the feast. He gives them the parameters. They have the wedding feast. There it is. They're one. There's a union. They're going to be God's people. God is going to be their God. It's going to be this wonderful thing. And then Moses is not gone barely a month to get the rest of the covenant. He's just up to get the rest of the agreement. And they're already making golden calves. And, oh, oh. and God's like, you see, so this passage is about God making a real mediator out of Moses. Not a guy who stands in and does some vows, but a man who stands in there when death is warranted and saves lives in a way that was not what he was doing before. And if we recognize this, there's two things we're going to recognize. One is the, the status, the nature, the character of the greater mediator Jesus, God is going to bring about later, Jesus. And 
it's also going to bring about something that we need to recognize because the, the New Testament puts forward what the Old Testament puts forward, that the Israelites were supposed to be a nation of priests. What's a priest? It's a mediator, right? It's a mediator role. And when God creates a nation of priests in the New Testament that he calls the church, what is everybody who's in the church? That is everybody who's a believer in the risen Jesus, for whom he is their savior and their king. What, what is every single Christian by nature and character? A priest and therefore a mediator. So the first thing we've got to recognize mediators do is every mediator worth their salt intercedes. They're, they're intercessors. They get—and and, and that—and like if you've been around Christianity, you've heard about intercessory prayer, and I'm an intercessor, and I have the gift of intercession, which is awesome. Okay, that, I don't want to—that's—I wish—you know, it's kind of like last week where— um, where Moses was like, man, I wish, I, you know, there were these guys offended that somebody else was prophesying rather than Moses was like, man, I wish everybody prophesied. I wish every Christian had the gift of intercessory prayer. Like, they just love to pray. Um, but that's not what intercession is. What intercession is, is getting in there and stopping the natural flow of things. That's, that's what intercession is. It's when you, you see something happening and you get in there and you interrupt the flow. And it is the role of a priest. It is also the role of a husband or a wife a parent, or a actual real friend. Now, I know we've all been pre-programmed to get upset every time anybody ever intercedes in our life to try to interrupt the flow of where we're going. I understand that. That's called pride, hubris, arrogance. That's a sermon for a different time. But the, the point is, is that if we're a friend, a parent, a husband, or a, whatever, you, and we see the trajectory— if we're a mediator, the first step is to intercede, is to get in there. I mean, think about it. There's people in your life probably right now, and you're like, oh, should I do anything about it? Uh. And yeah, you've got to be tactful, but listen, mediators intercede. There's no such thing as a mediator that doesn't intercede. The first step is getting in there, right? And that's the first step Moses takes. It's the don't kill them part. Right? If you, if you remember from chapter 32, it says this. The Lord said to Moses, Go down because your people who you brought out of Egypt have become corrupt. They've been quick to turn away from what I commanded them and have made for themselves a cast idol in the shape of a calf. They've bowed down to it and sacrificed to it and have said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. I have seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, and they are a stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. Then I will make you into a great nation." But Moses sought the favor of the Lord his God. O Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against your people, whom you brought out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? You sh why should the Egyptians say it was for evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to wipe them off the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce anger. Relent and do not bring disaster on your people. Remember your servants Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, whom you swore by your own self. I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and will give your descendants all this land I promised to them, and it will be their inheritance forever." Then the Lord relented and did not bring on his people the disaster that he threatened. One of the things that everybody who reads this passage, I think, with an open, like an interested mind comes up with is this whole issue of like, it, it strikes them at first kind of like one of those playground fights from middle school where like somebody's like, hold me back! You know, I'm, I'm going to punch him. Hold me back, right? Like, God's like, I'm going to kill him. And God, and, and Moses is like, he's like, you know, don't get in my way. I'm going to kill him. Don't get in my way now. And Moses is like, okay, stop. You know, like, it, it kind of, it, it comes off that way. And there are people who, there are people who actually interpret it that way. Um, most Jewish rabbis have interpreted it that way, that God is going to, you know, is going to kill him and he's, he's angry and Moses intercedes. And that's why Moses is the great father of Judaism, one of the great fathers of Judaism and so on. And then there's other people who look at that and be like, why would you be a Christian? I mean, that's terrible. That's, I mean, that depiction of God is just awful. Why would you, I mean, why would you believe that? And it's important to recognize that whenever you interpret a passage, particularly a narrative passage like this, that's telling a story as it goes along, right? The context, where are you in the story? What's happened? What's going to happen? What's, right? If you assume the end from the beginning, you're going to have all kinds of problems. You see, one of the things that's, one of the things to recognize, um, John Calvin said this in in, in interpreting this passage in his commentaries, he says, this is not the first example of a contradictory word from the Lord in the Bible. Right? He says, just think back to Genesis 22, 2, which is this. Abraham, take your son, your only son whom you love, and take him to the place I will show you and sacrifice him. 
Remember that? It's like eight sermons ago. Of course not, right? Um, right, God commanded Abraham to take his son Isaac to a certain place and to sacrifice him. And what happened when he got there? Did he kill him? No, God stopped him. But you see, what happened in that particular case was God did something to Abraham and he made him the father of the faith. He, he created faith in Abraham in a way that was unprecedented in many ways and that transformed who he was and transformed the promise and transformed the line of the promise. And he, he did something with that. That is, he pronounced something to happen, knowing perfectly well that was not what he was intending in his will to bring about. In fact, there's a number of the places in the Bible that are like that. Hold on, I'm going the wrong way. Do, 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 do. There's, there's a number of places in the Bible like that. Genesis 22.2, Exodus 32 right here. 2 Kings 21, that's a, that's a really interesting place. Hezekiah is sick. Isaiah gum, comes to talk to him, and he says, listen, Isaiah, I hate to bring the word of the Lord to you, but here's the word of the Lord. You're going to die, so, you know, put all your things in order. Appoint the next king, because you're dead. And, and it says that Isaiah leaves, and Hezekiah rolls over in his bed, and he prays. And he says, God— I've, you know, I've tried to serve you all these years. I've done this, blah, blah, blah. He said, please have mercy on me. It actually wasn't a very good prayer theologically, but he just, he asks for God's mercy. And so Isaiah's walking out of the palace when God speaks to him. He goes, Isaiah, and he's like, yeah. He's like, go back and tell Hezekiah that he's going to live another 15 years. I mean, can you imagine being Isaiah? You're like, Okay. So he goes back, he gets to Hezekiah, he's like, Hezekiah, actually, you're going to live another 15 years. Um, here's, the, here's the treatment for your disease, and put it on, and it'll work. And so Hezekiah lives another 15 what, what was the whole point of telling him he was going to die? You see? So, so the way, and then in Jonah, right? I mean, think about the book of Jonah. God says, Jonah, and I want you to go to Nineveh, and I want you to tell him in 30 days, somebody's going to come and destroy your whole city. You're all going to die. Just go tell him that. And what does Jonah do? He runs, right? Why? He runs because he doesn't want to tell people that they're going to die, right? He feels bad for him, doesn't he? No, it's not, that's not it, right? No, he runs and, and, and finally ends up in Nineveh after he gets, you know, goes through a whale's digestive tract a little bit. And he, he gets there and he tells them and what happens? They, re they respond. And he doesn't say, if you repent, then God will stop. He just says, listen, in 30 days you're all dead. And they go, oh, stink. And they, they, they repent. They put on sackcloth. They put sackcloth on their animals. They, like, repent. You know? And, and what does Jonah say at the end? Because this is how Jonah, the book of Jonah ends. Jonah's, Jonah goes, I knew it. I knew that's what you were going to do. You told me to go and tell them they're all going to die. I knew from the very beginning you were going to save them. I knew it. Right? What does that mean? It means there is a distinction between what God decrees and his pronunciation. What he pronounces. There are certain things that in his revealed will he pronounces. He says, this is what's right and wrong. This is what's going to happen. If you do this, this will come about. Oftentimes declaring that something's going to happen without saying, if you change, I'll change. He just says, here's how it is. And he pronounces it. And, but he doesn't decree that it must happen. He pronounces that it, this is the way it is. And sometimes people respond. And he changes what happens. And in the case, in this case, in relationship to Moses, he does a very interesting thing. Um, it, there used to be an older word in moral philosophy called disinterested. And I remember when I went to graduate school, I thought what that meant was you weren't interested. It's kind of like how you're listening to this, you know, the sermon, right? I mean, it's kind of like, I'm just disinterested. But that's not what the word means in moral philosophy. In the world, in moral philosophy, it means you don't have an interest in the thing. That is, you, you don't have anything personally to gain. You are personally disinterested. You have nothing to gain from it. You just do it because it's right, or you, or you don't do it because it's wrong. But it's not because you're going to gain something. And it's interesting how this works. I mean, imagine, imagine this is the story of Moses. I mean, Moses did not want to go to Egypt, right? You remember this? He's like, I can't do it. I'm not a good talker. And then, remember what he says? The last thing he says to God? Just send somebody else. Remember that? From, from the first chapters of Exodus. He didn't want to go. He goes. He's in mortal danger the whole time. He finally gets the people out here. They've been complaining. He thought they were going to kill him one time. He thought, you know, he thought the Egyptians might kill him. He just didn't know what was going to happen. He finally gets to this point. He finally gets them to the altar. The first thing that happens is they can't even get out of the, the, out of the reception without an affair. And like, he's got to— and, and, and God basically says, listen, Moses, 
you can be out. You can be out. You've been the mediator. You've done this thing. You got them to this point. Here, here we are. And they, I, we gave them the covenant. And this is what they've done. And I, and what they deserve is death. And I, my, I'm gonna, my anger is gonna burn against them and I'm gonna kill them. And then, not only that, but I'm gonna take you and I'm gonna make you into a great people. That's what he says, right? He says, I'm gonna take you and make you into that. I'm gonna fulfill all my promises through your line. Right? So what has he done? He's offered to take a job away from Moses that he never wanted. To end all this problem, all this struggle. And he's put an enormous personal blessing attached to it. So he's taken away, he's, say, he's saying, you can be free of all the stuff you don't want. And I'll give you everything. You see how this works? Because you see real intercession, if you really are going to be a mediator, and if you're really going to know the true mediator, you've got to realize that real mediation is disinterested. The mediator doesn't intercede because he can, be, he can be free of something or because he can get something. The intercender intercedes because it's right. It's out of compassion. It's out of love. He says, you're right. I have everything to gain and nothing to lose. And I can be free of all the things that I want to be free of. I can be free of this errand I never wanted to go on. And God says, all you got to do is leave me alone. Now think about it. That's, that's kind of funny. Like, you guys don't have a Jewish father-in-law, most of you. I do. And there's a lot of backwards questions, right? I mean, th- I mean, think about this. He says, leave me alone and let my anger burn against these people so that I'll destroy them. What is he saying? What's implicit in that statement? If you step in, you can stop this. Here's what I'm going to do. Leave me alone so it will happen. He's implicitly saying to Moses, Moses, if you step in, you can stop this. If you intercede, you can mediate for these people. It can work. I'm gonna, but I'm going to destroy them if you don't. You see, you can, you, could, you can make the interpretational argument that God is just mean and Moses steps in and a human knows better than God. Or you can see the flow of this passage of Scripture and you can see that when the stakes go up so high— There has to be a change in Moses, and therefore there has to be a test that when Moses comes through, he will become a new kind of mediator. And this is it. Do you want you, or do you want God and Israel to be one? What do you want? And Moses picks Israel. And he doesn't do it by appealing to anything but God's own character. There's nothing to appeal to besides— God and what God already knows, what God has already said, and what God already wants to do. And he says, remember what you said you were going to do. Now do that. And don't kill him. And God says, okay. I think the whole point of that passage is that Moses becomes an interceder. You can't be a mediator without an interceder. And what's important to recognize is that um, there is a greater interceder. Hundreds of years after Exodus 32, but hundreds of years before the birth of Christ. This was written in Isaiah 53. A lot of people recognize Isaiah 53 as the most messianic, Jesus-focused passage in the whole Testament. And it says this about Jesus. After suffering, after the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many. Justify is a word. It says to bring back into right standing and right relationship. And he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong. Because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sins of many and made intercession for the transgressors. In Hebrews 7.25, it says this about Jesus. Therefore he, Jesus, the risen high priest Savior, is able to save completely those who come to God through him, that is, by believing in him, because he always lives to intercede for them. Right? You see, the argument is because Jesus is the priest who was raised from the dead with indestructible life, he can be their mediator forever. You see, Mo- why did Israel fall apart? Well, there's a lot of reasons, right? But one of them is Moses dies. There's a point where the great mediator dies, and they go on without him. And they don't always have fabulous mediators. They got one decently good king who wasn't perfect. And then they've got a bunch of terrible kings and a bunch of terrible prophets. They've got a few good prophets, but they wouldn't listen to them. Right? 
Romans 8 says it this way, who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? In this context, that's people who believed in Jesus. It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Jesus Christ who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Right? And 1 Timothy talks about how this relates then to us, those of us who believe. It says that I urge you then, first of all, that request prayers and intercession, that is praying to intercede for people, should be made, and thanksgiving be made for everyone. That's kind of a big task, right? For everyone. First for kings and those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Savior, who wants all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. You see, this is the goal. This is his pronouncement. What I want is to bring all men to knowledge of the truth. Therefore, what I want you to do is, I want you to pray. I want you to intercede. I want you to get in there. I want, I want you to be a mediator. You see how that works? The second one is mediators seek atonement. Now, this one's a little, a little bit interesting because Moses then says this. He says, the next day Moses said to the people, you've committed a great sin, but now I'll go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sins. So Moses went back to the Lord and said, oh, what a great sin these people have committed. They've made themselves gods of gold, but now please forgive their sin. But if not, then blot me out of the book you've written. Right? That's pretty, that's pretty noble, right? He says, forgive their sins, and I will offer my life. He puts his own life on the line, right? This is what God says. The Lord replied to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. Now go, lead the people to, this, to the place I spoke of, and my angel will go before you. However, when the time comes for me to punish, I will punish them for their sin. And the Lord struck the people with a plague because of what they did with the calf Aaron had made. Which means, Moses as a mediator saw atonement for the people, right? He sought to get their sins forgiven, but did he succeed or fail? He failed, right? He couldn't do it. He even offered his own life. He, he, he said, I will give my, my own life for you to forgive the Israelites. And what did God say? No. They're, they're going to get punished for their sin, and you're going to lead them. Because that role of a mediator, I'm paraphrasing now, because that role of a mediator, you can't do. In a couple weeks, we'll get to Leviticus, and that's where there's finally some sacrifices offered, where when people sin, they can, they can do a guilt offering, and they can do a sin offering, and they can, they can create an offering. But later on in Hebrews, it says, even those offerings, offerings of bulls and goats and all that kind of stuff for sin and for guilt, could never actually take away sin. They could only point forward to a greater sacrifice, one that Moses couldn't be and one that these animals could never be. But only one sacrifice, the sacrifice of the God-man, Jesus could make atonement. It says this a few verses earlier in that same passage in Isaiah 53. But he, the anointed one, the righteous servant, Jesus, was pierced for— Now, pay attention to the prepositions. The prepositions could save your soul. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And the punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds we are healed. For all like sheep have gone astray, each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. You see, the argument that this is making is, is that there is one who would atone. God's righteous servant, the anointed one, the Messiah that was to come, that one would be for all who came before and whose sacrifices is pointed forward, and who all who came after, who by faith would be connected to that one atonement sacrifice, he would be the one, the one whose sacrifice was significant enough, was great enough, the one who was the God-man, the second Moses, the prophet that was to come, Jesus. Moses couldn't do it. He could point to it, he could lead the people, but he couldn't make atonement. The third one is mediators seek imputation through union. I'm sure that one's got your attention. Boom! In Exodus 33, it says this. God says, Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go with you, because you are a stiff-necked people, and I might destroy you on the way. 
When the people heard these distressing words, they began to mourn, and no one put on any ornaments. For the Lord had said, Tell the Israelites, you are a stiff-necked people. If I go with you, even for a moment, I might destroy you. Now take off your ornaments, and I will decide what to do with you. So the Israelites stripped off their ornaments at Mount Horeb. Now this goes back to that whole pronunciation versus decree thing. If you're trying to figure out what to do with, I might destroy you like God doesn't know his own mind. See that when this is stated here, it's connected to what is decreed to the people. Or, I'm sorry, pronounced to the people. It's not a decree. It's a pronouncement. They're different. Now, if you can't figure that out, that's fine. But just don't get, just don't get cheeky with this. Does that make sense? One thing, if you don't understand it, it's not to think you understand it and badmouth it. Second, Moses said to the Lord, You've been telling me, lead these people, but you've not let me know whom you will send with me. You've said, I know you by name, and you have found favor with me. If you're pleased with me, teach me your ways so that I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Remember that this nation is your people. The Lord replied, My presence will go with you, you singular, you Moses, and I will give you, Moses, rest. Then Moses said to him, If your presence does not go with us, Do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you're pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you've asked because I am pleased with you and I know you by name. You see, Moses couldn't deliver atonement, but he could deliver presence. He could say, God, I don't don't want to go from here I would rather be here under judgment than there in a land full of riches without your presence. These people cannot be your people without you. You have to be there. There has to be your presence, and you can't, you can't appoint me their leader and say that you'll somehow be with me and not with them. That's, that can't, that can't work. Don't ask me to do that. And God says, okay. Okay. Now, one of the things that people really often struggle with in the concept, the concept of imputation, that is, the concept of imputation is this, that your, our sin, that my sin and your sin are put on Christ. They are imputed to him or credited to him. And Christ's righteousness and standing is imputed to us or credited to us. And people go, how is that, how is that morally possible? How can you say Somebody else can die for your sins, and somebody else's righteousness can belong to you. That's not—that's not doable. Philosophically, that can't work. Now, there's three or four different ways you can argue that it does work. Um, but one of the ways is related to union. That is, in the Bible, it says that when you and I believe in Jesus, we are justified by faith, made in right standing with God, and that God himself lives in and with us. That is, there is a union that happens with God that is not just— moral or theoretical, but is actual. That God comes to be with us in a way he was not before. It's called the miracle of regeneration or the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Both of those are bound up in that. That we're transformed from the inside out and that that Christ in the person of the Spirit comes and lives in and with us somehow. That is, and so you say, so, so this is how this works. Imputation does not work so much. This is how Millard Erickson says it. He says, Imputation is not so much the matter of transferring something from one person to another as it is a matter of bringing two things together. That is, it's not that here's Jesus and his righteousness and he gives it to you. Or here's you with your sin and you give it to Jesus. He says, no, it's, it's more like this. It's that when we come to believe, we come to belong to Jesus and he belongs to us and we become one. And when we become one, all of, my right, all of my unrighteousness belongs to Christ too. And all of his righteousness belongs to me too. Because of our union one with each other, all that is his is mine, and all that is mine is his. You see, if you look at it that way, that's what every culture has always believed. Husbands and wives own the same stuff. When you get married, everything you have is imputed to your spouse, and vice versa. You see, and so Moses, who had, the, had union with God, God was going to give him his presence. He said, no, it has to be for these people too. And Moses could argue with God and say, let's do it this way, but only Christ could make it the fundamental nature of the reality of knowing and following God. Only Jesus could create the actual union of God through his Holy Spirit with you. 
In fact, one of the themes of the Old Testament is the aloofness of the Spirit of God. That God is there, he's working providentially, there are times when he interjects himself, but there's a sense in which, although God is active and present in making a people for himself, there is not this individual per person kind of union that is mediated through something else. It just, it's not the same. That's why Pentecost is so weird. In Acts 2, Jesus ascends into heaven. He says, I'm going to send you something that wasn't here before, which is the, the presence, the actual right here in you, with you, Holy Spirit. That's never really happened before. And now it's going to be normal. Everybody who believes in me and is mediated, who I intercede with, and they receive atonement, there's going to be a presence, and it's going to come and be with and in you. And it's never happened that way before. And you're going to start a new era that we're going to call the last days. That, that's normal for you. And it, it was never true until Jesus created that possibility of union because he would become one with us through his atoning work. Only on the condition of faith. Now, this is how, this is how Paul says it in Romans 6. He says, we were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. If we have been united with him like this in his death, that is, Jesus died and we as Christians will often suffer for his name. If we, if we have a dying union with Jesus, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. Why? Why is that so true? It's because we're united with him. He died so as to display the glory of God. What do you think is going to happen to us? Something relatively similar. Paul says the exact same thing in um, Philippians chapter 3. He says, I want to be like him in his death, and so somehow to attain the resurrection from the dead. What is he arguing? He's saying, I want to be so united with Christ— in a real spiritual union that everything that I have is his and everything that he has is mine. Therefore, everything I think I have is worth nothing to me. Therefore, we are united with each other and I may die just like him, but I will also be raised just like him. And I will be for, together with him forever. And all through the Bible, Paul is always using this preposition in. In Christ, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. And it doesn't always refer to a spiritual union. Sometimes it refers to other things, but a lot of times it does. It refers to the spiritual union that really comes to those who believe in Jesus. Now, one of the things you could be saying if you're trying to track this message through the whole Bible is you could be saying, okay, Nick, this is really cute how every week we come in here and you take some passage from hundreds or a thousand years before Jesus was born and you make it about Jesus. And every, every time, it just kind of seems like you're— is th- does, Did Moses think that? Like, I mean, is that really what Exodus is saying? Or is that just what the New Testament is saying and you're pulling it back? Well, I would say, yeah, this is exactly what Moses thought. And here's the proof in Deuteronomy 18. Moses gets to the end of his life. He gives the Deuteronomos, the second law, Deuteronomy, right? Deutero 2, nomos law. Deuteronomy means the second giving of the law. Deuteronomy is basically the law from the other books squeezed into one book, given a second time to the children of the people that received it the first time right before they go to Israel. And in it, he tells them about something that was going to happen. He says, listen, you need to understand something. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me. Now, he's not saying a line of prophets. God was going to raise up a line of prophets, but amidst those line of prophets, there was going to be one in particular. He's going to raise up for you a prophet like me from among his own brothers. What was special about Moses as a prophet? He mediated a covenant. Moses is the only prophet of the Jews that mediated a covenant. For this is what you asked for of the Lord, the God—so he says this, among his brothers. You must listen to him. Now, why does he have to say it like that? For this is what you asked of the Lord, your God, at Horeb, uh, on the day that the assembly— of the assembly when you said, let us not hear the voice of the Lord our God, nor see this great fire anymore, or we will die. Now think about that for just a second, if you've got any brain left, okay? Just hang with me for one more second. Why would he say it like this? You must listen to him, for you said you wanted it this way. You said at Horeb, which is where they received the law, right? You said, we don't want to see God in in a pillar of fire. We don't want to see him at the top of a mountain, coming in a pillar of fire with lightning and thunder. It's terrifying. That's not how we want to receive it. And so God says, okay, 
So what's the alternative? That God himself should mediate a covenant through just a person. And what's the, what's the liability when God does that? It's that we won't listen, right? Like if God comes and like blows the top off the church, it's like, hello! We'd be like, we'd be listening, right? You'd be like, ah, uh, okay. You've gone over the proper decimal level, decibel level, God, but um, surely you have something to say. We'd be listening, right? And whatever he said, we would probably remember for a while. For a while, right? Now here's the problem. What happens when God says, okay, you don't want it like that? I'll send you a guy. <laughs> oh, yeah, I'm sure he'll really stand out. And Isaiah, in that same chapter 53, said, there's nothing about him that would draw us to him or cause us to be attracted to him. The Lord said, this is the rest of that prophecy, what they say is good. I will raise up a pro- for them a prophet like you, that's Moses, from among their brothers, that is, he'll be a Jew, he'll be a Hebrew. I will put my words in his mouth and he will tell them everything I command him. If anyone does not listen to my words that the prophet speaks in my name, I will call him to account. So now listen. I'm making the argument. There's only one, there's only one Jewish prophet who mediated a covenant. Only one who spoke directly the words of God. And there is only one who came from the line of the Jews, was born in Bethlehem in the line of David from the tribe of Judah, who was raised up to speak the words of God in God's very name and to mediate a new covenant. Who then provided what Moses could never provide, full and final eternal atonement. So that the relationship between human beings of God could work. Because the law could never make it work. It needed mediation. It needed somebody to bring it together. And not just between, and not just for the wedding ceremony, but for when it was going to fall apart. For, for our real lives, really now. When we don't believe, and we're not sure, and we don't know if we want to obey, and we're not willing to take the hit, and we're just, we're just struggling our way through it. That's, that's what we need a mediator for. Every single day. One who will get in there and intercede. One who will bring atonement that Moses never could. And one who will create a union with God through which we can know God and have his pleasure on us and for us to be stand righteous before him and to walk with some confidence and to know that we will never, ever be alone. Imputation promises at least four things. That you're justified, you're set right with God, that you're being changed into what you were meant to be, that God is with you, and that you have spiritual authority over the things that will try to kill you. Now, if you don't think that's practical, I don't know what is. I just don't know what it is. Paul says it this way, for there's one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all men, the testimony given in its proper time. I think when we see this about about what a mediator is, how necessary there's somebody, there has to be somebody who gets in there. There has to be somebody who atones, who pays their own price to bring two together. And there has to be somebody who creates union by being there. When we really realize that that's who Moses was meant to be, that that's what God was making Moses into, that Moses was pointing forward to a second prophet who would be it perfectly, well, there's two things we come with. One is you b- believe in Jesus. Believe in Jesus. The re- your relationship with God has always required a mediator. The statement of God's love towards you is not that he would get rid of his own character so that he could be your friend, so he could be your special friend. The glory of the beauty of God is that God would maintain the beauty and glory and truthfulness of his holiness and provide for you and I a mediator that could bring us into all of that maximal goodness. It is the mediation that is the glory of the gospel. And Jesus is that mediator. So believe in him. If you do, cherish him, enjoy him, trust him, follow him, and recognize 
that the ministry of mediation has been passed on to all who believe it and follow him. Why don't we get to have a Christian country? Why is God not going to create some place on the earth where all the Christians get to go and all be together and everything's wonderful? Because, of course, if all Christians were together, it would be wonderful. Maybe, maybe not, right? Well, part, part of the reason is because we're part of what was called in the Jewish culture the diaspora, the, the scatteredness. I mean, that's how First Peter starts. He goes, to all those of the tribes of God who are part of the scattered. Why? Because we're supposed to be priests. And the work of a priest is to be a mediator. And to be a mediator, you got to be there. You've got to be among all the peoples of the world. You've got to be in every neighborhood. You've got to be in every language group. You've got to be in every people group. You've got to die in Muslim countries. You've got to die at the hands of fanatics. You've got to go in and, and save people who are dying who you normally wouldn't care about. You've got to be generous with your money. You've got to be there. You've got to be a mediator. You've got to intercede. You've got to get in there. You've got to atone. You've got to fill up in your flesh a suffering that doesn't atone for sins, but that where you pay the price for something— so that other people can be redeemed, so that they would look to Christ for the greater atonement for their sin to bring them to God. And we've got to be with them to mediate the presence of God in such a way as that us being with them could somehow bring God's presence in a way that they could see it. And by believing in Jesus, have it for themselves. We are supposed to be the lesser mediators, shining the image and pointing to the one who is the glory of all things of all time, the one prophesied thousands of years ago, the second Moses that could do what he could never do, but that we can point to. Let's pray. Father, um, we pray that you would help us to see Christ and to see you for what you are in this work of mediation to recognize that there must be a covenant between us and you, that there have to be standards and truths about our relationship, that your beauty has to shine forward, your moral truth has to be seen, that, you're, that, that you will not tell a lie to make our relationship work. And Father, from that we recognize how important it is that somebody would get in there and help us make work the relationship that we would never be able to make work. We pray that you'd help us to see something that in the glory of Jesus—